Benjamin. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Doing fantastic. Uh, seven days of travel. Not not fun, but I made it back to the episode that we were recording, uh, like promised. And speaking of that, we'll get right into it because we have a lot for you today for all the listeners. Uh, we have a special episode, and I will cue Chris up for it. Uh, he could explain why. Today's episode is special. I've been doing a retrospective. Ben and I have had a conversation in the past on a few different episodes um, on the podcast, and uh, we've brought up, or I have brought up, this project that I've been doing with uh, two friends on Letterboxd, and that project is a retrospective of sorts with the great John Frankenheimer, director of many action films and other stuff as well. Those two individuals are Maximilian or Max. You can say hi. Hello. And uh, Mr. Nick Langdon, who uh, has appeared previously on our pod um, on the episode for Road Games. Right to be back. Yeah, we're happy to have you, Nick. Um, Max, same. I'm really glad you guys uh, were willing to do this. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and I think we, it's going to be... We do have like the entire globe covered now. Like every, <laughs> every time zone. <laughs> Every time zone, a lot of time zones, but yeah, no, glad, glad you guys could make it. I know, uh, scheduling with multiple people, we, Chris and I know it's hard, so it's glad I'm glad all four of us got together at the same time. Why don't we start with a general background? I think if you were to talk to anybody who maybe if you were to talk to a cinephile, they would know the name John Frankenheimer. I would probably think it's safe to say that not every cinephile has seen a lot of John Frankenheimer movies. Um, maybe that's just my personal experience. Maybe you guys feel differently about that uh, based on who you know. But uh, I want to ask you and start with a little bit of background. Maybe previous to our retrospective, how many John Frankenheimer films had you have seen? And then is there anything you can provide for the background of this of this man that we're covering? I think that there is this, if people have heard about Frankenheimer, there's a sort of um, perception out here that you had this young guy who became one of the superstars of the live television era in the 1950s and early 60s, the sort of the golden age of television in the United States. And then he had that incredible hot streak in the 1960s, directing films like Birdman of Alcatraz, um, obviously The Manchurian Candidate, probably his most famous film, Grand Prix, Second seven days of may frame, seven days in may that's right then the perception is he sort of disappeared for about 20 years and then he kind of came back once again into the world of television in the 90s with a lot of prestigious hbo tv movies and miniseries that won all the emmys and then he made uh, Ronan, a, a very well-known action film in 1998 and then so it just when it looked like he was getting this late sort of golden summer of his career he died in 2002 and so that's kind of the tldr version of frankenheimer's career and i think that's probably where most people who haven't done the sort of retrospective we've done would sort of think of him they might know some of his 60s work they might know some of his tv work and that's there's a big hole in the middle mm -hmm. to piggyback off of nick i would also say if people have even heard of him, I think probably the movies he's done are more famous than just him as a director. Uh, he's unfairly 
unfairly categorized as a journeyman's director, like a guy you just give a project to and he does a competent job of it. Mm-hmm. When he, even from even from his first films, he was very much an innovator with story, visual storytelling, uh, even with you know, very meager teen drama flicks like All Fall Down or... Yeah, All Fall Down, there was the early... Young Savages. Um, yes, I was going to say the, that was the first one he did with uh, Burt Lancaster. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think people wouldn't know exactly where to they wouldn't be able to put his face to the name. And I think a lot of people too wouldn't know that he came from TV originally. He came from the same area as uh Sidney Lumet, right? Like people know there was that, that whole about generation. Yeah, there was a whole generation of guys, Sidney Lumet, Franklin Schaffner, who directed Planet of the Apes and Patton right. and films like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Sidney Pollack, he came from that world, Frankenheimer, mm-hmm. all of the sort of like the biggest names really in sort of 60s and 70s and onwards, a lot of them really did get their start in that live TV era. Mm-hmm. And it's actually is listening to a podcast with William Friedkin, and he was talking about he had a, a job doing like shitty TV directing in Chicago. Like he would direct <laughs> like live news things or cooking shows or recordings for the orchestras, like local stuff. And he yeah. said that like Frankenheimer was his hero because he was directing mm-hmm. these 90-minute live dramas, and that's what Friedkin really, really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So even in the world of television, he was like superstar for people who really were into that world. Mm-hmm. Kind of ironically, he was more famous to people in the industry rather than the audiences who watch his movies. That's an excellent observation. I wanted to go back to what you said, Max, about him being an innovator. Um, mm-hmm. I think that I think that he he must be, I don't know if all three of us agree with this, but if he must've been one of the first people to incorporate Dutch angles specifically into, into the work and make it popular for TV, would you say that he's also introducing, um, do you think he introduced a lot of like zooms, uh, dolly work, all of that as well? Or did that not happen until uh, the mid sixties when he was in stride with his hot streak filming, mm-hmm. making films like the train or, you know, intense mm-hmm. action sequences. I, I think when you get into his movie work, especially, he was innovating with tracking shots. And there's one famous scene in The Train where uh, Burt Lancaster is running away and he, he goes through a house and he opens the door and you see the Nazis running at him. And yes. those type of shots you didn't see very often. Movies back then. We're usually just more static, and he wanted to. He really made the action feel much more alive. He was also one of the first directors I can think of who utilized point of view shots. Mm-hmm. Um, Grand Prix used it quite a bit to put you like in the seat of the race going around yes. the track. Um, and even even in his lesser movies like The French Connection too, you know there'd be point of view shots uh, during a chase scene where you see Gene Hackman's perspective as he's running through. Um, the various alleyways as he's pursuing criminals and that to me is not stuff that you see his contemporaries doing yes so just really quickly on that with the tv i think he was you've watched a lot more of his early tv work than i do but because it was live it was more easy to when you're doing live television directing it's more about like creating a live edit that you're cutting between camera angles because it's happening live you can't do you you're sort of limited in the setups but he would right. do all the elaborate camera movements dutch angle zooms while it's all happening live 
And even if you look at, you talked about mm-hmm. um, that young savages, and there was Bert Lancaster tells that story about walking onto the set and seeing a camera sitting on the floor, like looking up <laughs> at the ceiling, mm-hmm. and he'd be like, "Who is this kid? You know, from TV, and what the hell is he doing here?" But that yeah. shows mm-hmm. that, and again, even in that uh, opening foot chase in the Young Savages, which is not a great film, but the opening titles of chase scene is really good, and you get a bit of that point of view stuff, that fast cutting, and you go, "Okay, this is a lot better than the." post rebel without a cause juvenile delinquent dramas of the late 50s early 60s you can see that there's a real talent and an artistic eye here i enjoyed the young savages i think more than either of you did um yeah but i will clarify i don't think it had anything to do with the script i think it was just purely john frankenheimer elevating what was otherwise very a very generic uh teen delinquent script well and to be fair max i think all of us I don't know, maybe maybe not Nick, but I think, I mean, because you just explained it with the Young Savages, but I certainly mm-hmm. also have my favorites where he strictly is elevating the material over mm-hmm. over the script that he's given. Yeah, which, I mean, that makes a tremendous difference. I want to make it throw out another example out there. The other TV one that he elevates really well is the one that starred William Shatner. Uh, ah, I think yes. it was a Playhouse 90. That was mm-hmm. um, A Town, Town is Turned to Dust. Yes. So I think he had already started making some films at that point because this was 1958. So he maybe had one or two in. Um, but his his talent is evident in that one because when I think back about that particular special, the set is bare. It's like mm-hmm. it's it's very minimalistic. The, the, the town fronts are like pieces of wood that I mean, I, I think of it, it's very skeletal. Like it wasn't very mm-hmm. elaborate or anything, but he, his camera work made it, made everything feel alive there. Mm-hmm. I think you really need needed eyes like him in the television space. Uh, we, we kind of forget now in this era of prestige TV, where they're working with, you know, $200 million budgets per project. But when you get into TV, uh, television shows that were, airing at the, the the dawn of television even existing, it felt like they were just fighting to have money to exist. Like there's no money for anything extravagant. And right. you needed people like John Frankenheimer to, to spice it up ha- however little they could. They could. Just dealing with cardboard, one single cardboard set. Speaking of like one set there, I think that what you just said there to build on that, that TV experience really helped him with... Birdman of Alcatraz because Mm -hmm. that was one of the first movies where he was brought in by Burt Lancaster after they sacked the original director Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, because you know it just wasn't working but you're talking about like a 150 minute movie almost that takes place pretty much like 90% in a single prison (laughs) cell cell. (laughs) like how do you make that cinematic how do you keep the visual interest up for almost Mm -hmm. two and a half hours of basically one guy in prison for the most of it but he does that and i think that expertise with finding those angles and just working with very little to give a lot is what makes him a great director and what you're talking about elevating material because the script for that it's a bit didactic it's very sort of you know the guy who wrote it was all like oh this guy's a hero he deserves to be released it's not a great script but frankenheimer really brings it visually not to not to drag in another movie that we've all happened to have seen, but compare sure. that to to the last mile, which we watched through a totally separate letterboxed group. 
By the um, way, it's a, very, it's a very low budget fifties prison yes. B movie kind of. Yes. Mickey Rooney, but like that, that one has the added benefit of having like a siege shootout at the end. I would argue still less interesting than Birdman of Alcatraz, which is pretty much just a guy taking care of birds, talking to birds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a exactly. shootout at the end of Birdman of Alcatraz too, but that's just I think they needed some kind of action. Yeah, yeah. action. Well, it's so- much more. It's not quite as expansive as the Last Mile, but still mm-hmm. more interesting. I would say visually. Which says a lot. Yeah. And I think this is a perfect segue. So like now, now we're starting to talk about his trademarks. Okay. So (laughs) one more thing to add in terms of innovation. Sure. Sure. Go ahead. I was watching the Manchurian candidate earlier. uh, Cause that was, that's one of my blind spots. Um, I actually came in late into the Frankenheimer project. So there's a, a good chunk of his best work that I missed because by the time I came on, you guys are kind of getting more into the, the dregs uh, that you're scraping off the bottom of the barrel. Um, And I think that's the earliest example I can think of a movie in which someone has their (laughs) brains literally blown out and strewn across a wall, like giblets and gore in a movie that old. He he pushed the content. uh, He pushed content quite a bit, both politically and graphically. Yeah, and also I really think that um, uh, I was talking about like Sidney Pollack before, and if you watch all those, uh, you know, Three Days of the Condor, some of those seventies paranoid conspiracy thrillers, they really owe a lot to the Manchurian Candidate, mm. and it yep. is so like it came out during when you know Kennedy was still alive, but it feels sort right. of almost like post Kennedy when there's this you know sort of crowing cynicism about America and this sort of creeping paranoia that would obviously build after Watergate. Yeah. There. So he's a real innovator in terms of tone as well. You went from these shiny, happy 50s stuff to the much more darker things that came along at the end of the 60s. And I think that yeah. Frankenheimer was a big influence on the new Hollywood movement, even though he was like um, Kubrick. He was a sort of a generation before that. He goes from what you were saying, the 50s, it was melodrama. And then he was going all of a sudden to these paranoia thrillers. Um, which were just totally different in almost every regard. As I was saying before, this is a great segue into into his trademarks. And I think we're already starting to hit upon uh, what those are. We've already mentioned he's an innovator. He's got the Dutch angles. There's a lot of technical aspects that are that matter. What would you say are other trademarks that he has throughout a majority of his work? Well, one to sort of bring the two together, something that I've talked a lot about in the reviews that I've written with, uh, you know, as we've gone along watching the films with you guys, is what I call process as narrative. Now, exposition is often like the death of good cinema. I mean, look at just about every Christopher Nolan film. But there's something that Frankenheimer does where he explains a lot of often quite technical things to the audience, but he does it in a way that is that very dynamic, very cinematic, very innovative, and he sort of sneaks it in on you. Now, since we're talking about the Manchurian Candidate, that's a classic scene. The iconic scene of that film, well, there's many iconic ones, but the brainwashing scene that alternates where you see them in, Mm -hmm. like, China being brainwashed and it cuts to where they think they're at this, you know, garden party for these old ladies in New York (laughs) or wherever. And the way that the set was rotating between the two, so it's all done seamlessly, and that by using that technique of, like, the rotating set, he sort of brings you into the fractured minds of these brainwashed soldiers who were captured in Korea. So they're explaining the whole setup, how the brainwashing works, 
but it's you're not focusing on this as exposition. You're focused on the dazzling technique and trying to sort of keep up with it, and you're really brought into the perspective mm-hmm. of these poor soldiers as well. And throughout that whole film, he brings you through the mechanics of a conspiracy. And I know one of Chris's favourite films, one that came out a couple of years later, Seven Days in May, he also, again, it's this real political paranoid conspiracy thriller about this plot against the President of the United States. And he sort of walks you through all of the stages of this conspiracy, but it never feels like exposition. It never feels like, let's explain what's going on. It's all done through process as narrative. And you said a key word there, other than the process, you said mechanism. And I think I think that's that's it. He's he's explaining the mechanism of things and and what you said how they work as opposed mm-hmm. to explaining the broader idea. The mechanism is just a tool and how to eventually hit upon that that broader theme idea whatever it is. And along with that with the process it another trademark happens to be the leading man, right? I mean, he doesn't so this is something that Max I I think Nick obviously you've been a part of it too but something that Max and I have gone back on throughout his films are you know best female roles in a Frankenheimer film because there are so few of it's a short list it's a short list it's a short list it's a short list it was a man's man and there's nothing absolutely nothing wrong with that and it's actually fascinating that he focused on that so this is all part of what Nick what you're saying about the mechanism of things I mean we can list more of the films that we've already said but it's a big part of the train. It's a big. It's a big part of Seven Days in May and the Manchurian Candidate. I guess in a different way. It's a big part of my favorite film, probably, which is The Horseman. Would you say he was one of the first directors that would explore sort of uh, male fragility, sort of a wounded male ego? Maybe if we were to, I can't really think of anybody off the top of my head, but he sort of segued into it perfectly with those 50s melodramas, because when you look at those, the focus of all of those are the teenage boys. In a lot of, if you watch a lot of film noir, you see a lot of like, you know, men getting sort of broken and beaten down, Mm -hmm. but they sort of often, that's kind of where they go. Whereas I put it as like I was saying in Frankenheimer's films like that, you get those men that are broken and pushed to the edge of death, but they sort of, the -hmm. typical Frankenheimer hero or protagonist, some of them aren't very heroic, keeps pushing through (laughs) because they've got this sort of bloody minded determination not to let their world be destroyed and to prevail Mm -hmm. in the end. And that's where you see like a lot of his examinations of these men who are pushed to the limits. And that's also like the train's a good example of that um, French connection too, which we were mentioning before. Another one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's sort of where he's really sort of interested. And that's why, I don't know, if you want to nominate best female performance in a Frankenheimer film again, mm-hmm. it's not a very long list, but that's what he's mainly interested in. I guess, yeah, instead of, instead of, male fragility it'd probably be better for me to have said vulnerable men men that are put in very vulnerable situations that they then have to push through in order to survive but not just physically they also really get mentally run through it mentally your favorite the horseman is a great example of that another through line i guess with this would be that they're all trying to attain some some form of hope and Mm -hmm. That's another key word because I think that is something that's very personal for Frankenheimer and something that we can attribute to his personal life, where I, which I think we briefly touched upon maybe when Nick explained. For everyone listening, Frankenheimer, the trajectory of his career changed greatly in the 60s. He had a hot streak. He was friends with a lot of high political figures. JFK was one. RFK was another. So he was in, he was, that was his in crowd. And when both of the Kennedys passed away, 
the trajectory of his life completely changed. He fell into the deep wells of uh, alcoholism. That was sort of when everything, that was when the black hole of his career had started, where there was 20 years basically to the public or to anyone who followed him that is he making movies or you know where is this yeah, guy so is just, he in the wilderness yeah. just on that point it's it's weird almost to say how close he was to the kennedys like john f kennedy was a big fan of his work and had mm-hmm. asked him to work on the 1960 campaign but i think he was getting divorced from his first wife at the time so he couldn't and then kennedy was also a fan of the manchurian candidate so when they wanted to shoot that sort of opening riot scene out the front of the white house in seven days in may you know this isn't the day where you could just green screen it they he actually kennedy gave frankenheimer permission to film outside this pretty like violent riot scene and outside the white house which was considered shocking at the time and then he did go grow very close to robert f kennedy jr and was actually making a documentary about RFK's campaign for the presidency in 1968. And they were actually so close that on the night that he was assassinated, Robert F. Kennedy was staying at Frankenheimer's house because it was in Los Angeles. And Frankenheimer drove him to that hotel. And Frankenheimer was waiting in his car for Kennedy to come through the kitchen to go back to their house, to Frankenheimer's house, when Saran Saran shot him. So. Yeah. Yeah. Again, they weren't just like somewhat close. They were very, very. They were buddies. Right. They were buddies. Yeah. And professional and personal friends because, you know, politically, Frankenheimer was, uh, you know, very anti McCarthyite liberal, which is ironic because, of course, Robert F. Kennedy worked for Joe McCarthy, but that's another story. Yeah. Yeah. So, as, and then as Chris was saying, it, it, that really deeply affected him to various degrees. He moved to France. He became somewhat Mm -hmm. of an on and off alcoholic for the next few years. And again, with all the best will in the world, the quality of the films suffered. I will say his relationship to the Kennedys is probably the sole thing that kept him off some communist blacklists of the era, because I'm surprised <laughs> he enough. got away with what, what he talked about in some of his 60s movies. Well, it's it's prescient. It's it's almost mm-hmm. like, I mean, he predicted things in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very it's very bizarre how everything sort of just lined up. And he was either so in tune with the temperature of the room politically that it was bound to happen or it was just sheer luck. Right? That's interesting too. That it's funny that his last film was the HBO movie Path to War about Lyndon Johnson. And mm-hmm. so what's interesting about Path to War, it's not only a great film, but it's also Frankenheimer looking back on an era that he not only lived through, he had like personal connections and involvements with. And he mentioned, of course, that he was initially quite critical of Lyndon Johnson, but like a lot of uh, historians and thinkers, he came around a bit. One of the reasons he wanted to make the film was to, again, take another look at that crazy era of the 1960s up to, mm-hmm. I mean, the film Path to War opens with like sort of Johnson winning the 64 election and sort of ends with him not running again in 68 then that's when sort of frankenheimer's friend robert f kennedy came through right. so yeah, it's it's an interesting bookend to his career both personally and well, and his person and professionally it's it's poetic to say the least because mm-hmm. 30 years 30 years 30 plus years removed from everything it's almost like a cleansing moment i feel like yeah. um, i didn't love the movie as much as you guys did maybe on a rewatch i will but i agree like it's a very it could potentially be a really great spot for him to have ended his career, honestly, being able to take another chance to look back at that era and where he had his first hot streak. If it wasn't for the one horrible green screenshot of them exiting the helicopter, I would call it probably one of his finest films. films. 
Oh, there's some pretty poxy green screen work at the Arlington National Cemetery as well, but I guess they spent all the money on the cast. It's a great cast there in, yeah. in Past of War. Um, but yeah, it's it is it's one of those films like um, Oppenheimer, which has bizarrely become this big hit. But you, it really make it it uh, makes no concessions to those who don't know a lot about the period. Um, mm-hmm. That's why I was surprised Oppenheimer was a hit because there's all this stuff you have to know about World War II and American politics in the 30s and 40s and the history of physics, all this sort of stuff. It's the same with past war. If you don't know your George Ball from your McGeorge Bundy and you don't know all the intimate sort of uh, details of 60s American politics and Vietnam, it it, it could be a bit off-putting. <laughs> no, that, that was a very educational movie for me. It's very, yeah, it's, it's for a certain crowd for sure. Like it, you wouldn't, Say that that's for everybody, despite yeah. That you have to be a real like American politics junkie about own Cold War, you know, student to really <laughs> kind of get what's going. So I, I kind of admired that, but I also understand why. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a very critically admired film, but not really a crowd pleaser. Yeah. Right, right. If, if you're the kind of person to watch Ken Burns's Vietnam documentary, you might get something out of Path of War. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so I think I think that's a pretty good touch upon his background trademarks is there anything else you guys want to add as far as big themes i mean hope is sort of the big theme the blue collar mm-hmm. leading man where the process is the narrative is a is a big mm-hmm. thing and then and then history in general i mean he yeah. covered a lot of history especially in his 90s tv work which i know uh nick you haven't really seen much of that uh the tv stuff i i should clarify that for everyone listening the three of us have for our retrospective specifically covered all of his theatrical work max and i have taken it upon ourselves to do a little extra and we're we're not done yet but we are going through his tv work which is not really great and not necessarily (laughs) terrible it's just sort of middle of the road so far though we have a lot of we have a good amount of his 90s work still to go Mm -hmm. where he won some of his emmys Um, sort of to link those two things together the other kind of theme that really runs through it is that his political views and i mean even a film that's kind of like a schlocky action film like uh, 1989's dead bang where you've got don johnson fighting <laughs> neo-nazi it's not a great film it's a very kind of cheap generic late 80s crime movie but again what's interesting about it is that it shows it's frankenheimer's politics so he was sort of he you know he, he was in the air force and he actually uh he wants he, he got a job as a working in the film department making training films when he was serving in the Air Force in the early 50s. And he actually made a film with Curtis LeMay, who was the head of the Air Force. And of course, he was the guy who was telling Lyndon Johnson to bomb Vietnam and all that. And then one of the characters in um, Seven Days in May is actually very closely based on Curtis LeMay as well. So that's another interesting parallel there too. But so he sort of was very, very, uh, not only close to the Kennedys, but even in the 50s, he was very much appalled by Joe McCarthy's like communist witch hunts, which he saw as an affront to like American liberalism and the idea of individual liberty and freedom. So that sort of that classic American liberalism is a theme that runs through a lot of his films, even in the kind of schlocky ones like Dead bang where he's going up against these neo-nazis and in the sort of 80s and into the 90s you saw a revival on the american far yeah. right and you see that, that sort of conscience going throughout his work i think that's definitely where you see the the brief the brief highlights of like the the blips on the heart monitor during that latter half of his career because yeah. when when he's when he's invested in a subject that's interesting to him you get stuff like black sunday where a political thriller about uh, something that's very topical now. Uh, yes. Terrorists who 
are opposed to our financing the Israeli government. <laughs> yes. Which led that is maybe not a financial success, but it was a critical success, even though it's sandwiched between stuff like the French Connection 2, which was just just a paycheck doing a throwaway sequel, and Prophecy, which was just a piece of garbage. <laughs> garbage. <laughs> Right. Environmentalist fight yeah. there. I don't think he had any any investment in that. He, he was I think clearly he was drinking heavily drinking. Yes. 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 Bingo. He to pay his booze. Uh but for for Black Sunday too, it's another it's another testament to his innovation. I mean, look at the it's it's like James Bond-esque, and I'll throw that out there for you, Max, as a uh, super fan of that. Yeah. But it, it seriously is. I mean, Robert Shaw. Great, great leading man, maybe not one of the better leading parts throughout the whole in the films of all of John Frankenheimer's career, but Robert Shaw's memorable and the action sequences are awesome off of the off of Mm -hmm. the blimp. And and also the fact that it was the first time the NFL had ever allowed someone to film with their TV crews during a Super Bowl like that would never happen today. (laughs) I know that um, Chris is a big football fan, so that was a particular delight for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it absolutely was it. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, it is just as good of a movie as Day of the Jackal, which is pretty much the exact same movie in structure, just with a different setting. One has a criterion release and one does not. It doesn't. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. it's yeah. It, And that's another great example of that idea of like processes narrative that he really brings you inside both how to mm-hmm. plot a mass casualty terrorist attack. And then also this Robert Shaw is playing this um, Israeli intelligence agent who's trying to stop this as well. So it's just this, um, it's probably one of, along with Ronan, probably his best post 60s film, I think, Black mm-hmm. Sunday. And yeah. uh, for those who are interested too, it came out uh, early in 1977 and John Williams did the soundtrack. And if you look at this sort of ending scene, you might hear a very uh, famous, <laughs> half almost very famous cue that Williams would reuse for a certain little picture he did also in 77 called Star Wars. I guess because he figured yeah. this was a really good musical idea. No one's ever going to see Black Sunday. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good Easter egg. And actually a, a great segue to another qu- a question I want to ask you guys. So, for anyone who is interested in John Frankenheimer, someone who's maybe not seen any of his films or maybe has seen the popular ones. Oh, wow. It's like I should be asking this question. Oh, and Ben, <laughs> do, you want, do you want to ask this question? Go ahead. Go ahead. You can say something. Well, I was just... You're awake. I had something written down because I... Yeah, I, I'm here. I, uh, uh, maybe I'm awake. I don't know. But yeah, I wrote down a note like 20 minutes ago, but I was going to ask, how did this project frankenheimer thing even start because if i'm a new i mean i've seen five or six of his movies but if you're new to him what is you know i i mean the starting point for these these type of directors is usually their most famous work right but what really started this project i mean i I, i'm assuming from what i've heard because i did i did uh, i'll tell the listeners i didn't know much about their project besides it existed and they were they were rating a bunch of stuff on letterbox but so so max you came late to the party it sounds like yes i'll need to let chris and nick address this one because i i just latched onto them like a parasite so well just just really quickly no not it's not an interesting story or anything but um chris and i were doing some like mini collabs we were like watching the same film and reviewing and we watched a few a couple of different ones and then i suggested the train because we were looking for things that i think were both on our watch list that we really wanted to see and i really wanted to see the train (laughs) Ben's holding up the uh, Blu-ray of it now. Um, and we both really, really loved the film and then decided to just 
watch a few more and then quickly it turned into let's watch the whole of the uh, John Frankenheimer filmography and uh, then Max kind of jumped in as well. So yeah, that's the, that's the incredibly boring story. In order to get on the John Frankenheimer train, <laughs> you must start with the titular film. Must start yes. with train, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which, yep. funny enough, is not the first one I own. I, I own The Iceman Cometh. The Iceman Cometh. I bought that on a Kino on a Kino Lorber sale for Lee Marvin, and I'm and then I'm like, I'm looking at it. I'm like, what the fuck? Four hours. I I I voted for like two years. I'm, I I can't I can't do it. I just can't do four hours. I mean, I just would you say Ben? It's a pipe dream. Uh, <laughs> so a little bit of an inside joke there. Yeah. So they say pipe dream like a million times. It's. Mm-hmm. So for all the jokes that we throw at the Iceman Cometh, I, I think I'm proudly the one who is rated at the highest among the three of us with uh, In- Chris, this is for your notes for editing the episode. Insert Dr. Freeze or Mr. Freeze. <laughs> Reach, uh, uh, chill note here. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The Iceman uh, Cometh. Um, <laughs> so Cue the dinosaurs. Watching the Iceman Cometh. so other than the fact that we make fun of it um and that i am also the one that was the kindest to it and rated it a three out of five um it is in all seriousness something that i think was really true and true to his heart for john frankenheimer's Mm -hmm. heart with with all of the hope regurgitation it also was yeah it's it's got that theme there like about the broken men and the possibilities Mm -hmm. of hope yes like robert ryan he just know uh his character is you know dying well, it doesn't move it also was that stylistic one because it was this filmed version of the play and he's sort of going yes. back to what he was doing on television with this the limited confines of everything set within this bar and how cinematic can he make it now i don't think he really succeeded in making it cinematic because it is four hours <laughs> um but True. it was True. it was something that like Again, it, it ties into a lot of his themes, and it was a kind of a return to the comfort zone, I think, for him technically. I don't think any of us would say the Iceman Cometh was his fault. It was, it's, it's just not a script that really lends itself to being adapted to TV. Very, very much the type of play where you just need to be sitting in a dark theater, feeling like you're sitting in the same bar as these dudes. You get an intermission every 45 minutes to get out and stretch your legs, use the bathroom, get some snacks. Um, yeah. and, and, a, you and a whiskey. You don't get on TV. And a whiskey. You have to be as right, drunk yeah. as they are, right? It's yeah. also you like, get that on TV. That, yeah, when you're filming plays, the, the, the films that are made from plays that work the best are those that find a, a sort of way to tell that in a language of cinema. Whereas, mm-hmm. unfortunately, the Iceman Cometh, it really is just a filmed play. So I don't think it works. If you're a fan of the playwright or, you know, at least some of the actors, it might be worth a look, but it's a really long four hours. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to, to piggyback on Max's point about not it being entirely John Frankenheimer's <clears throat> fault, um, perhaps there's also something to be said that it was also Robert Ryan and Frederick March's last film. So both of those gentlemen were also toward the end of their life. Uh, Robert Ryan was sick when he took the role. So, I mean, like he, he's clearly... I mean, the performance, I think his performance is actually pretty, pretty great because he is coming from that perspective uh, for the character that the character's experiencing similar things that, that he is in mm-hmm. real time. Um, so yeah, I think it's a very interesting. Both, they're, yeah. yeah, they're both facing death and they sort of know it. And you, like you said, Chris, that really brings a, a, a sort of an extra level to the performance. Yeah. It's and not, I think that's it's not a it's not a Richard Harris and Harry Potter 2 situation. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Excellent. Interesting parallel, but I'll take um, it. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> entirely accurate. But yeah, and I think that might be the highlight of the Iceman Cometh. But in a nutshell here, it's it's very it suits Frankenheimer regardless of the fact that it wasn't maybe the best cinematic choice mm-hmm. based on the material. I don't so, I don't know if Frankenheimer dabbled in doing live theater, but it that feels like if if that was a something that meant a lot to him it feels like that would have been one that he should have just done a play. Yeah, do it off-Broadway or something, but I, yeah. it, it doesn't really work as a film. Well, it's interesting because, Max, we just watched The Rainmaker yes. from 1982, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we both talked about dark this. Period. And we both mentioned this in our reviews of that film, tying it to The Iceman Cometh because of similar themes. But we both enjoyed it, this The Rainmaker mm-hmm. a little more than The Iceman Cometh. Why do you think it was better here than the Iceman Cometh. Is there a particular reason? Or do you think the material was just better? I was thinking about this. I don't think the material is better. I think the material is simpler than the Iceman Cometh. It's not dealing with as deep of themes as the Iceman Cometh. It's not talking about death. And it's, not for four hours. Uh, yes, that was the other thing. It is half the length of the Iceman Cometh. And yeah. even though it is not a zippy play, it clips along a lot more. There's more plot developments. Yeah. Uh, Iceman Cometh is like a dirge of sitting in a mass grave of old men. <laughs> the Rainmaker yeah. has some energy to it, especially once uh, Tommy Lee Jones Tommy Lee enters. Jones. I think I agree. And then it also gets points for having a great performance from Tuesday Weld. Um, oh, yeah. But all right. Yeah. So the comparisons there. Um, I think my point there, bringing that up and mentioning that comparison is Frankenheimer sort of returned to plays occasionally uh, throughout yeah. his career. Yeah, really, really quick one. Since you mentioned Tuesday Weld, um, a film that none of us particularly liked, but it's almost sort of interesting, was 1970s I Walk the Line with Gregory mm. Peck Tuesday Weld. Yes. Which is interesting because, again, to cut back to something we never really talked about before, about interesting female performances in a Frankenheimer movie, I think Tuesday Weld's interesting and good in that film, but yes. it's a very sort of incomplete film. He was sort of, he shot it while he was making The Horseman, so he was sort of juggling two <laughs> films at once. He didn't really care about this one. He was focusing a lot more on making The Horseman. This was just a sort of El Cheapo movie. But um, what, what, Was he flying sort of, back and forth from Middle America to the Middle East? I think there was a big yeah. delay in production or something. Or like He, he filmed one in post-production with the other. Yeah, it, and this is his sort of, again, this is 1970, so it's his sort of grieving wilderness years kind of project. Right well. at the beginning of those of that era. As I mentioned yeah, before yeah. recording, none of you have seen this, and I have, so I'm, I'm special in this regard. This one thing re- regarding Frankenheimer is that I've seen Andersonville. Ah. Yeah. Which is based, which, yeah. Points for bad. One, one point for, for Gryffindor, back to Harry Potter. And this was one of those movies that, you're like, why am I watching this? It, it was a history class for the you know American Civil War, so it makes sense to be watching it. Now that you guys are talking about the, about the process and you know the down the the man who is struggling through a bunch of different psychological and physical things, I think a a, a prison camp makes sense for that. It's a, it's a perfect mm-hmm. setting for that, and there's a lot of processes in the digging of tunnels in that movie which I guess Nick, the history buff, maybe not in American history, I'm not sure. For self-explanatory reasons, if you look up Andersonville, the uh, prison camp in the, the South during the late stages of the Civil War, 
Why have none of you watched that movie? Why am I better than you? Uh, the quick answer is because uh, it's it, TV. Well, it's a TV. Yes. A TV Nick movie. Clarification. Max and I are eventually getting to it. it, it uh, Nick doesn't a, do TV movies. It won an Emmy. Yes, he won. Nick, as far as you know, did as far as you know, did Andersonville ever screen in any theaters, festivals, or anything? I mean, uh, Past War was a TV movie, but it actually be, uh, it screened theatrically overseas where HBO doesn't exist. Hey, I, 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 I can screen it theatrically in my basement, <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, that was like 1986. And then if you go into the 90s, I think some of the ones that you guys have watched, like, uh, was it uh, George Wallace? Um, we haven't seen against, that one yet. Against the yeah. Wall. The burning season. Yeah, he really was on a roll of winning Emmy after Emmy for his um his yep. miniseries and his TV movies as well. That was 1996 for the Andersonville, but yeah. Regardless, he won a he won a primetime Emmy. So, <laughs> come on, Nick, exceptions. <laughs> uh, but yeah, when Chris and Max get to it, I'm looking forward to a review because it's been probably a decade and a half since I've seen it. Maybe a little less than that. You're you're lucky, Ben. We had to watch Glory in my in my history classes. I had to watch that as well in the same class. So I mean, all we did was watch movies. They're like, ah, Gettysburg, ah, got the generals. <laughs> just, just put them all on. History uh, class giveth and it taketh away all at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. So, um, let me ask another question to you guys. Okay. Mm. Uh, out of all of the films. That he made. Which film of his surprised you the most? Um, you know, exceeded expectations in a positive way or in a negative way. You can mention one for each or just one whichever one you want. Nick or Max, either of you have an answer to that? Need to think about I want it. You to, I want you to actually talk about this because I have a feeling that you're gonna talk about the gypsy moth. So why don't you lead off this conversation? <laughs> or do you want to talk about the gypsy moths? So is that you're talking to me or Max? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I think, I think that would be correct. I think the Gypsy Moths was probably the one that surprised me the most. Um, and if I recall correctly, that was the final time that he and Burt Lancaster worked together. Um, which, as a yes. team up, they they had done it five times. Five um, times, that's right. Yeah. Gypsy Moths uh, was 1968 or 1969. 68, um, I believe. Thank you. And yeah, I think that one was surprising because it um, it feels again, I, I can't remember because I it's been over a year since we watched it. But uh, is that one based based on a play? I don't think it was. No, I would okay. love to see them try to do paragliding, <laughs> on, paragliding on the theater stage. stage. <laughs> uh, so good point. Good point. So no, um, but. The reason why I'm thinking that way is because I think in my review, I, I compare it to Tennessee Williams. Um, so like the play when it's in the interiors and when Burke Lancaster is with Deborah Kerr um, at, or like when Scott Wilson has his moments, the film feels very much like a play, but in, in a very well done, like it's cinematically well done. Um, the melodrama is good. The script is good. But Frankenheimer does elevate it, obviously, with the skydiving sequence yeah i think we were talking about first before i believe he was the first to strap a 35 millimeter camera to the head of a skydiver to shoot mm. the skydiving scenes that were almost all shot for real and um actually the he shot so much of it for real that he had to replace um an actor who actually 
was originally in the film who injured himself. That's um, right. Oh, who was that? Uh, John Philip Law was originally cast in the film, and he, he actually broke his leg, I think, in one of the skydiving bits, and he had to be replaced. So that's how. And I think that was. And, and Scott Wilson, I believe, was the actor who replaced him. Yes. Yes. And Deborah um, Carr was actually. It was a uh, obviously a bit of a reunion from Frankenheimer with uh, From Here to Eternity, I believe, one of the uh, Searchers' favorite films. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is actually a very nuanced female character in a Frankenheimer film. I thought Deborah Carr was fantastic in that. Uh, in Agreed. The Gypsy Moth, even if I didn't quite love it as much as you did, uh, she was really good. Yeah, so it, what it I'm needs... gathering from what you just said is we have John Frankenheimer to thank for the pre-title sequence from Moonraker. <laughs> Was it a skydiving? Yeah. It is. Roger Moore gets thrown out of a plane. Jaws with the metal teeth jumps out after him. It's um, fantastic. <laughs> right. I, I, think, I think that's safe to say. Yeah. So d- with my answer being the Gypsy Moths, I think... Well, that's absolutely the answer for exceeded expectations in a positive way. I mean, it's either that or the horseman and the horseman um, I rave about. You guys know I'm sort of alone in the island on that one. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for the restored version. There, it's on Amazon Prime right now, at least in America, which I'm not, maybe I got to watch that now because Chris, Chris, you brought like the Spanish Blu-ray for that movie. That means you really like it. I love that movie so much. Yeah. And it's and it's. And it's cut down from supposedly four hours that Frankenheimer mm-hmm. shot, um, yeah. which I am anybody listening that works for a company, um, AKA Sony, um, <laughs> please, please look through the vaults and please mm-hmm. give us all of the lost scenes or cut scenes mm-hmm. from Could the I just mention yeah. that Again, this is a bit of, uh, to use an American term inside baseball, but, um, we watched one of Frankenheimer's least successful films called uh, Story of a Love Story or Impossible mm-hmm. Object. It's this sort of French romantic drama starring uh, Alan Bates and Dominique Sander from 1973. And again, it's it's just the weirdest Frankenheimer film because it's this sort of very domestic love story mm-hmm. about infidelity in France. Yeah, right. And uh, on my review, some guy commented is actually doing a restored Blu-ray version of the film yes. because it was fantastically a, a box office complete failure at the time and it only mm-hmm. got some bare bones VHS and DVD release in a pan and scan format. And Not this, even in America. It was only overseas. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll defer to Max as the Blu-ray collector. But um, so <laughs> some this boutique company, they're doing a deluxe version of this. And we've been encouraging Chris to start hammering home and trying to get a restored version of uh, The Horseman out. Because it, it was filmed as like it was supposed to be this, I think, at least three-hour epic. And then yeah. it's well, New Hollywood. Two. New Hollywood. New yeah, Hollywood. Exactly. Like it's, it, it's, it, it, feels it feels like, like that New Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It feels like a film that doesn't have a third act. It feels like just when it yeah. should be building towards like an epic forty-five minute big thing at the end, it just stops. Mm-hmm. It's just this. Real, it's like a real blue balls experience for me watching the horse mm-hmm. because you can kind of see the outline of what would be a masterpiece, and it's just not there. Yeah. It'd be like what, watching it, a a ninety-minute version of Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because most movies will have work print copies that are where they just toss in everything they filmed, and it's usually three or four hours, and they cut out all the stuff they don't need. The Horseman, I think, needs probably most of what he shot. It really does feel like it is a compromised story. It is truncated to the point where it has no flow 
at all. Character development is just, it hits you like a brick wall and you're saying, I don't understand why this is happening now. Yeah, so I think all of your points, guys, are are probably fair. Um, I think what just blows my mind because I gave it five stars. It's one of the perfect scores um, that I, I gave to Frankenheimer film. But um, I think it's an aesthetic thing. I think it's the combination of the actors. Um, I, I've now I've watched it three or four times now, um, and I'm I'm just I'm crazy about it. So I I don't know. I don't know what it is because like, I, I sort of agree that there are parts that are clearly missing, but um, it just, it sort of just hits all the right notes for me still. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's clearly just a subjective thing. Um, Let me just um, keep it moving on. I'll get to, and then I'll ask obviously Max, since we did a, a quick point. Quick yeah, point. Yeah, sure. I just want, I just want yeah. to throw in a real quick trigger warning for anyone that's interested in checking out the horseman based on Chris's recommendation. Uh, if you're enough. an animal lover, uh, either don't watch it or be prepared to have your finger on the skip button. There's a yeah. lot of uh, animal cruelty in The Horseman, unfortunately. Which is a recurring trend in a lot of Chris's favorite films we've found in recent months. <laughs> and yes. I'm sure it's just a coincidence and he's not some sort of sadist. But a lot of his <laughs> films involve animal deaths. Yeah. The films tell, us about like. the, tell us about the cockfighter. <laughs> yes, exactly. The co Yes. So this is a very unfortunate uh, <laughs> A trait to some films that I happen to really love, where there, lo and behold, there's actual animal cruelty in them. Um, I do not condone animal cruelty. <laughs> so, uh, yes, thank you guys for bringing that up. But um, let me just answer and, Chris's question then about about my Frankenheimer deep cut, and then I'll mm -hmm. ask Max for his. My one I would pick would be uh, Fifty Two Pickup from 1986. So again, this mm -hmm. is in sort of the dark ages of Frankenheimer. And it's such a weird film because it's based on an Elmore Leonard uh, st story. Sure, and in yeah. the 90s, like, Elmore Leonard became, like, hot shit when you had uh, Jackie Brown, Get Shorty, Out of Sight. Like, all these Elmore Leonard adaptations were getting big casts, big directors, successful critical claim. But no one was really doing Elmore Leonard really at the time. So Frankenheimer directs this really tight little thriller. And it's got a great cast with Roy Scheider, who was a bit past his prime then, and Margaret. She's great. There's some fantastic villains there. John Glover plays this accountant who also makes porn and kills people. He's just just so sleazy. <laughs> you might know him as the lovable, you know, the the parallel universe nice Donald Trump guy from Gremlins too. But John Glover is just so <laughs> evil film and uh clarence william the third is great in it too and it's just this fantastic neo-noir thriller and it, it bizarrely it came out from canon films who aren't famous for their quality either you think canon films you think you know ninja three the domination and uh, just pure schlock uh break into electric boogaloo you know the canon story runaway train Oh, no, that's, well, right away, that, that's that's the rare masterpiece you know when yeah. you, you it's you, it's more like again those uh cheesy films so 52 pickup it's everything should be working against it it's a canon film you know stars past their prime director past their prime it just works really recommend 52 pickup interestingly yeah, really enough that the whole crop Oops, sorry chris no no, no i was just I was... saying yeah nick loves that one but go ahead you're deep cut I was going to say, uh, well, uh, interesting thing to note is he has one other adjacent, a canon adjacent movie, which is the Holcroft Covenant, which wasn't canon domestically, but it was distributed by them overseas. 
And that's, that's a very expensive. weird, that's a very weird Michael Caine movie in which he comes into like Nazi gold and there's a whole conspiracy to try to uh, get it from him. And that is definitely a guilty pleasure one. Not one I'd recommend for anyone's first Frankenheimer, but definitely a guilty pleasure. When yeah, I not a starting of, point. When I think no. of like star, old star and schlocky action movie and canon films, I'm thinking like Charles Bronson or something. So mm-hmm. is there any similarities similarities there with like Death Wish well, no, or something? It, no, because the those, I've watched so many of those Bronson canon. Like, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you all about Death Wish 3 and 10 to Midnight. But the thing about 52 Pickup is it's actually like really good. It's incredibly slick, very well made, very well acted. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a canon film. And again, I love canon films. Like, I really enjoyed uh, Alan Quartermain and The City of Lost Gold. Or what was it? No, uh, King Solomon's Minds with him and Sharon Stone. It was dreadful, but I had a great time. But 52 Pickup is a proper proper film i really recommend that one i can think of one link with a bronson movie which is bronson's movies of canon were almost always criminals mess with the wrong old guy and 52 pickup is about blackmailers who mess with the wrong businessman because rather than just paying the money uh roy roy scheider he just goes crazy yeah so i have Oh, and there's actually another connection too, by the way, that um, Roy Scheider, his um, mistress is played by uh, Kelly Preston, and her first role was as one of the nurses in Ten to Midnight. There you go. There's your Bronson connection. There you go. Perfect. Uh, So as as a... Oh, sorry. Go go ahead. I was just going to say, well, is your point short? Because my question is going to go into a lot more... The train's going to keep going down the line. Okay. 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 So, Max, did you actually... Yeah, deep cut because the whole craft covenant wasn't your answer, right? No, no, no. Um, okay. As much as I would like to vouch for ninety nine and forty four and a hundredth percent dead, uh, I can't. <laughs> that's that's one that's just on my wavelength. That, that's seriously the name of the film, people. Yes. Yeah. Can you say uh, that again say for it, everybody? Say it again for me. <laughs> Ni- ninety nine and forty four and a hundredth percent dead, which is this very weird movie that takes basically Harry Palmer from the Harry Palmer films and puts him in one of the more comedic James Bond movies. And it doesn't work, but that's why I like it because it is tapping into things that I love, which is Harry Palmer and James Bond. It's actually, it's technically a comic book film. Is it not? Yes. Yes. Um, I don't know if it's based on a comic, but it might be, but they, at least in the trailer, I don't remember if they do it in the movies, but Movie? in the trailer okay. they have they have like wham pows, like right. splash, like Adam West Batman stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, but as for as for the the John Frankenheimer, which surprised me the most, and I would actually tie this into your question, Ben, about what's a good entry level Frankenheimer. Uh, I'm going to go with Ronan. Um, okay. I think it is a very good movie for anyone who wants to get in Frank and Amber to watch uh, because it's similar when people ask me what James Bond movie do you start with? I think it's a mistake to say, go back to Dr. No, because that's a different era of filmmaking than most people are comfortable with. Um, so I would usually say, start with like golden eye, the Pierce Brosnan era. And then once you, if you decide you like that stuff, then go back and appreciate the, the, the old older, stuff. the old stuff. Uh, Ronan is interesting to me because uh, it is so, so 
so rare for any director who's completely past their prime to just come back and make one of the greatest movies of their entire career. Uh, it may not be as deep as like, say, The Manchurian Candidate or The Birdman of Alcatraz, but it is one of the greatest action movies of the 90s, bar none. Uh, I think it kicks the crap out of every 90s James Bond movie, which granted is just three, but... That says um, a lot coming from you, though. Yes, yes. Yeah. I would put Ronan above GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never Dies, and The World Is Not Enough. It is just nice. that good. Nice. And has tough Bond but, villains. But, but, it, it. but is that a high bar? Uh, <laughs> GoldenEye is good. A lot of people yeah. good. Golden can I also just say that if you, if you watch the Bourne identity and you see that car chase through Paris, mm-hmm. you can basically go, oh, like Ronan is the much better version of that too. You, I think Doug Lyman was really watching Frankenheimer's film. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. clear inspiration. So, I th- yeah. I, I would actually say, yeah, I, I think the 2000s action movie owes a lot to Ronan. I think that kind of set the stage for where you would get stuff like the Bourne identity and later Casino Royale. Um. Yeah, that's actually a, a great contextual uh, yeah. snippet. Yeah, I agree. Sadly, sadly, Reindeer Games is not a uh, completely satisfying follow up, but uh, definitely falls again in the guilty pleasure category. Now, it's, and yeah, that, that's, that's Chris going to argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> See, as and as you and, and that one's and that one's still well directed. It just the the script is not as tight as Ronan's was. Yeah, I and Ronan argue... is another great. And Ronan is another great example of what Nick was talking about, where the action is what informs the narrative. There's almost no exposition in, in Ronan. In Ronan, yeah, but, you're absolutely right. But you understand yes, everything the whole, that's going it, on. Ronan's like a classic, and again, to bring up something from the searches, it's a classic Hitchcockian MacGuffin. They're all after this case. Mm-hmm. And you never mm-hmm. find out what's in the case. And I think Frank and I or someone joked that it's the case from Pulp Fiction is in the case from Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, but it's all about this uh, this sort of pursuit for it as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, I was just going to say, yeah, Frankenheimer was working on another film with Robert De Niro when he died, and De Niro ended up directing it, which was 2006's The Good Shepherd. Which, unfortunately, you know, he might be a great actor, but as a director, De Niro is no John Frankenheimer, and mm-hmm. De Niro's film is this sort of pretty laborious slog through the sort of early Cold War and. Yeah, didn't didn't do it for me at all. I, I would have yeah. loved to have seen the Frankenheimer version of that because I think they were a great, um, you know, great actor and director combination. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. yeah, De Niro, not much of a director. Yeah. So to go back to my point that I wanted to, well, question, question. Uh, and I want to ask Nick because I think you're going to, we, we talked about the man from Hong Kong last time you were on, so... I think this is semi-connected, and we've talked about. Chris forgot to mention, but we did talk. I did talk about my impression on our Trading Post episode where we gave each other movies about Grand Prix, which has Tashira Mifune in it. So the challenge from 1982 with Scott Glenn, samurai martial arts. I've never seen it. Uh, is it? Is it like a, a sleeper? Maybe for me, I don't know. Should I watch that? Should I buy it? It, it feels it? more like a canon movie of his than a uh, 52 pickup. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. It's a very kind of cheesy, it's very 80s. Um, but it's, it's it's you know, it as Max and I both, we agree that the highlight is the climax is a 
massive fight involving Scott Glenn and a bunch of samurai that also involved office supplies. So yeah, a stapler. Uh, the stapler, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. schlock, but it's pretty entertaining schlock as well. Um and again, Toshiro Mifune makes it worth seeing. I just actually watched um 1971's Red Sun with Charles Bronson they get a callback mm-hmm. and Ursula Andress with Toshiro Mifune and uh mm-hmm. yeah he he just elevates anything that he's involved in too. Yeah. So yeah and if you want a good like, yeah if you want a good 80s B movie that feels as Max said very canon then yeah the challenge you could you you'll, it'll it'll be entertaining. It's not a deep yeah. film but you'll probably have fun. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. In contra in contrast to what Nick said, I recently saw Winter Kills that also has Toshiro Mifune in it, and they cut out eighty percent of his scenes because no one could understand his dialogue. Oh, that's so sad. Which is so so disappointing. Well, I, I, watched the, the, I watched the audio. I watched the audio <laughs> commentary, and the director said, uh, "When we went back and looked at the dailies, I realized I couldn't put these scenes in the movie because it would make." Toshiro Mifune look like a joke. So that, for this for for the sake of his honor, I cannot let these scenes be seen. That's when you just re- redub back over in Japanese and I put subtitles in. <laughs> well, he was dubbed in Grand Prix was Toshiro Mifune's first Western film, and he was dubbed by some white guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, when he did Red Sun five years later, there was another Japanese actor who spoke fluent English, and apparently he coached Mifune. So his dialogue is actually good in Red Sun, but I think he really needed that coaching at the time, and that maybe is what happened. You are real son. You are real but, son oh, of a bitch. <laughs> uh, yeah, Max, have you seen that? Uh, I don't think I have. All right, East one of the one of the better Eastern meets Western genre movies in my opinion but uh so there's the challenge which you guys are kind of endorsing as yes give it a go it's fun it is not a great it's not great but it's not bad well so what about scott glenn is a scott scott glenn uh, perform well like with his physicality because he actually is a trained martial artist he's kind of very there's a few fights yeah, he's he's pretty yeah. close thank, to chest thank about it. Thank God it was not a David Carradine movie. That's all I'll say. Oh God, <laughs> Scott Glenn pulls it off, but you could very easily see that movie going to David Carradine, and <laughs> no yeah. one wants to see that. No one's t- <laughs> fair. Yeah, yeah. Ben, do you have another question with that? So, or so just I, curious I was about... just gonna, I was gonna piggyback on. I walked the line. I like started to watch that on Amazon Prime because I just like. Gregory Peck and I don't want to be a completionist for every actor but he's one that I'll maybe try maybe but I stopped after like five minutes because I was like I'm not feeling this right now and you guys kind of like are saying it's not that great but maybe I'll give it a go at some point uh, um, it's honestly the only thing I remember from I Walk the Line is it's about a very old police officer who gets involved with jailbait and it backfires is there? That's, yeah, I mean, that's my that's my summary for I walk the line. That's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. Do, do they use Johnny Cash in the soundtrack? I, I walk the line. Come uh, on, they actually. <laughs> I, I actually think this is going to sound really silly, but I'm pretty sure the entire soundtrack is Johnny Cash. The soundtrack is Johnny Cash. Yeah, the entire oh, wow. soundtrack is mm-hmm. Johnny Cash. So, so is they, that why the name? They t- they try to tie it together. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, um, then maybe so that's maybe that's a reason right there, Johnny Cash. It's worth seeing for the soundtrack, and I would say it's worth seeing for. I mean, a reason to see it is probably Gregory Peck and Tuesday Weld. 
Um, the story isn't going to be the most fascinating. And that's kind of basically the whole gist of the film. Yeah. 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 I guess that if we're just talking about Frankenheimer, we do have to bring up the sort of it, the both elephant in the room and also one of his ironically most famous films, which is The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> oh, yes. boy. Have that you seen is, that one, Ben? Uh, no, that's one of the ones where, like, I think there's a very famous YouTube documentary talking about it. Uh, you've probably seen it, Nick. Mm-hmm. I, I think I've oh, seen it. I, 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 I own about lost, it. Island of Lost Soul. Lost Soul, it's called. Yeah. Okay. Or, yeah, yeah just, just Lost Soul, you're right. And even on um, Val Kilmer, that documentary Val that came out about yes, him. That's, yes, that's it's, probably it's also. Movie with, where John Frankenheimer is telling him to, you know, get his shit together. <laughs> yeah, I think I also, yeah, I watched that with my wife. So I'm probably remembering that. I'm, yeah. I'm probably like, uh, what's it What's it called? The What's the South African guy? Uh, the famous prime minister. Or who am I thinking of? From, sorry, from where? The South African Prime Minister, the uh, thing when you were you're remembering something and it's actually a different thing, but yeah, it's not um, coming to me. You're talking about, you're talking about the Mandela, Mandela effect. Yes, exactly. I'm I'm I'm, re- ah, I'm, re- yes. I'm remembering the wrong thing, but yeah, yeah. I did see the documentary. Sorry. No, no, that's my bad. I was I was interrupting you. Uh, bad habit of mine. Uh, I believe John Frankenheimer was also quoted as saying. Uh, if I had to direct a Val Kilmer uh, biopic, I wouldn't cast that prick. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he did, yeah. I, I got the direct. I got the direct quote here. He said, "Even if I was directing a film called The Life of Val Kilmer, I wouldn't have that prick in it." And then when he, he <laughs> with Kilmer's last scene, he said, "Cut now, get that bastard off my set." <laughs> yeah. So we we didn't touch upon this part in depth yet. We mentioned it in the beginning, but he Frankenheimer's wrongly. Uh, aligned as a journeyman director right and there's been multiple instances throughout his career where he has been the guy to replace somebody for whatever reason um i don't have the list of those films in front of me right now but the island of dr moreau is the prime example of this he replaced Charles Crichton on Birdman of Alcatraz. Now, if you know your 1950s British comedy films, a lot of the Ealing mm-hmm. comedies, like I think The Man in the White Suit was one of his, and uh, Charles Crichton was a famous comedy director, and it makes him a weird choice to direct this really grim prison drama. But anyway, mm-hmm. Burt Lancaster fired Charles Crichton and bought Frankenheimer in, and then they saved Birdman of Alcatraz. You know, we weren't so hot on it, but it gained a lot of... Um, critical raves at the time um so then when a couple of years later when uh the train was being filmed it was originally being developed by arthur penn but three days into principal photography once again bert lancaster sacked penn because (laughs) penn saw it as this sort of intimate drama film and lancaster saw it as this big action spectacular and so he bought in john frankenheimer and frankenheimer demanded a fat salary a two-picture deal and a ferrari and he got all of them so uh you know frankenheimer's (laughs) just you know that's a boss move there so yeah. he did have this reputation for sort of um, coming in and sort of rescuing these pictures that were struggling. And I think that even it's like when, uh, as the documentary Lost Soul shows in the 90s, 
when Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau fell apart, they tried to ask sort of just about everybody in Hollywood and no one would do it, probably because Dale Kilmer was part of the production. But <laughs> Frankenheimer said Well, and yes, Brando. Brando wasn't oh, the most Brando, yeah. easy guy to work with either. Yeah. No, no, he wasn't. So uh, once again, he negotiated himself a, a fat salary and a three-picture deal. But he said that he felt once he got to set, he was being horribly underpaid. But he, he did the film. <laughs> right. So Frankenheimer, he actually stepped in on The Horseman too, Chris. Yes, that was another one. I don't. Sydney, I can't remember Sydney who po- he replaced. Sidney Pollack. Okay, Oh. And that's a wonderful tie in there because we already mentioned Pollock's name a few times uh, from coming from the same, uh, the same area, the same era of uh, TV filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was going to say is for the, to the credit of the Island of Dr. Moreau, I will say that that film has uh, the performance I was most pleasantly surprised about, which uh was hyena the man who plays hyena swine uh daniel rigby who's basically a nobody um a lot of now this is probably a hot take um a lot of people i think don't really care for it but i i was thoroughly impressed with his performance um i guess that really might not mean a whole lot um in regards to john frankenheimer um but you know for as much chaos as what as was on the movie uh for that movie um, I think some some good came out of it, and I do rate it positively. I can't remember where you and where you two land on that one. Um, if if you don't think it's good or not, a uh, quick comment on hyena swine. One of the uh, interesting, uh, in, it, one of the interesting experiences I had with Moreau is you see in the opening credits that Ron Perlman is in it, and hyena swine both looks and sounds like Ron Perlman, but then. A little ways into the movie, a goat prophet shows up, and you realize, but wait, that's Ron. That's Ron. Is he doing two roles? And then a couple scenes later, they're both in the same shot, and you're like, which one's Ron Perlman? (laughs) They both look and sound like Ron Perlman. Yeah, yeah, that's accurate. I forgot about that. And turns out he was the goat prophet, not the hyena swine. Not the hyena swine. No, no. Um, but great yeah, performance the, the, the sayer of the law but i like goat yeah. prophet better <laughs> uh you know island of dr moreau it is what it is uh john frankenheimer was brought on to complete a movie that he probably gave zero shits about he's never done a science fiction body horror I mean, we haven't talked about probably one of his most acclaimed films, Seconds, which is kind of body horror science fiction as well. And of course, Prophecy. Prophecy. (laughs) Okay. Prophecy has that sort of sci fi horror (laughs) element too. So it wasn't completely unfamiliar terrain for him. But when I look at that film, all I sort of see is the compromises. And there's none of that, or very little of that, you know, the things that we like about Frankenheimer. There's not much exciting Mm -hmm. camera or technique there the, the script is dumb you know it, it, the themes are heavy-handed uh it, it's not his project yeah yeah i think that's probably fair um it's very brave of you to bring in prophecy as a way to shoot down my point <laughs> that's the Sorry. that's the trump card <laughs> throw a prophecy at it just like the bear throws the kid in the sleeping bag <laughs> i had to slip that in 
Um, So I think we can credit John Frankenheimer with uh, two of the greatest modern day gifts. One of them, our very own Max created on my, on my request from, uh, (laughs) from the whole craft covenant or Mario Adorf where John Frankenheimer does a snap zoom of Mario Adorf, which is just, Pinched it's fingers. not only a snap zoom; it's a snap zoom into like a Dutch angle. Dutch as angle. Well, so it's the most exaggerated snap zoom you've ever seen. It just slams in and at an angle. It's hilarious. And there's and there's nothing else like it in the whole movie. It like literally it's just Dutch angles in the movie. There's but other Dutch angles, do, but he doesn't do that zoom thing. It's just one time. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, we, we previously played that exact clip on the show. <laughs> Even though we don't show video, Chris is, like, I was like, Chris is I was like, Chris is like, you have to, you have to watch this, and I'm going to literally narrate every single part of the camera Moment. angle. Yeah, it's- yeah. <laughs> and so on that, on the other great gift is too. In prophecy, we agree that it's like a hundred minute movie, and there's three amazing moments. The first is Armand de Sante has a chainsaw versus hex so fight. Yeah, is that, is, that is that is pretty great. good. Yeah, yeah. You can't say no to a film that has a chainsaw versus axe fight. Then there's a bit where the main character fights a rabid raccoon and ends up throwing it into the into the fireplace. Yes, that's, that's true. Good one. And then there's and then, what we've just dubbed supersonic sleeping bag. Yeah, which where is man a phenomenal gift. from South Park sends yep. a kid into the stratosphere and turns yeah. him into feathers. All you see are yeah. just the feathers from the sleeping bag. The, yeah. The the problem with prophecy is John Frankenheimer tried to make a legitimate movie out of that script. And if he leaned further into the schlocky camp elements, it would probably have gone off like gangbusters. And we'd be, we'd be watching Prophecy 2, 3, 4, four. Pro- Prophecy Origins, Prophecy Bloodlines, Prophecy, prophecy Resurrection. Exactly. Ah, oh, man, you're giving, you're giving some studio an, an idea here that I think they might <laughs> Actually, run away with. And the- this is a more general comment, but something we've often talked about is people who, like Hollywood, they always try and remake great films and just do a worse version. Mm-hmm. What they should do is they should go and make remake a bad film or a film that has like a, a cool concept, but it just doesn't work. work so the concept yeah. of prophecy that there's this evil company and they're poisoning the environment and creating these horrible mutants, like it's a good idea, but it, as like Max said, it probably they needed to lean into the campy, schlocky horror not try and do this serious 1970s environmentalist message move. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to sort of pick your lane. It's yeah. about the money, Nick. They want to make the yeah. money. Yeah. I know. Sadly. Oh, what, what artistic credibility. Well, that reminded me, and I meant to mention this back in the beginning when we started with his 50s work and money and, and what sort of budgets he was, Frankenheimer was working with. But Max, you would agree with me because you're watching the TV stuff also mm-hmm. that a fascinating aspect of that are the commercials that come with the TV, um, right. The TV specials. So I don't know if they actually, they, I mean, they must've gotten money from all of the, from all of the spots from the ads. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, that was an interesting aspect of all his early work because there were these really old school fifties commercials, like about um, mm-hmm. a new razor or like a toaster yeah. or whatever. <laughs> Um, July razor, not July. Yeah, but. and I wanted to bring that up because um, I wanted to bring it up earlier. But it's it's sort of another um, interesting aspect that I mean, it, I guess it wouldn't really be part of Frankenheimer's thing, mm-hmm. but um, just to yeah. accentuate the era. Yeah. Well, that's what made Playhouse ninety kind of fall apart in the end because it was 
John Frankenheimer didn't direct all the episodes, but he directed more than anyone else. More, yes. And another driving force of that show was Rod Serling, who... Um, Twilight Zone. Yeah, of, of the Twilight Zone fame and Night Gallery and many other great anthology series. Yes. Um, and it was their lack of control over the type of content they could do in the show in the end that caused them to both basically white uh wash their hands of playhouse 90 i think it was specifically a town has turned to dust that ruined it Mm -hmm. because that was meant to be a uh very racially relevant story about uh a white town uh, wanting to lynch a black teenager for a crime he didn't commit and the the tv uh, cbs basically said no no not doing it. You're gonna yeah. you're gonna make conservatives upset. No, no, can't do that. And they still finished the episode by changing it so it was a period piece and it was about a Hispanic teenager in uh, uh like a border town rather than right. a uh, a black kid. Um, but it was enough that they they fin they adjusted it, they finished it, and then both of them were just kind of like, all right, we're done. And then right. Rod certainly made the Twilight Zone, where he had much more creative control over the type of stories he could tell, but Ironically, I don't think John Frankenheimer ever directed an episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, no. He, he sort he of moved out of TV not. almost by that point too, but I just really wanted to mention that Rod Serling was also the screenwriter for Seven Days in May. Yes. And one thing about that is, with the exception of the final speech, which I don't like because I'm not American and I can only tolerate so much flag-waving rah-rah, I do think it's a very well-written film. There's some fantastic mm-hmm. monologues, Burt Lancaster, one some of his best acting performance and of course it's also kirk douglas is probably like the main character in that so mm-hmm. again i think that was the one of the one the early ones we watched that chris was the most impressed with um but again if you're a rod serling fan you haven't seen seven days in may you definitely should check it out absolutely um my so favorite, i think my, my dad's favorite john frankenheimer movie seven days there in you may. Go. He, he always brings that up i'm like so it's such an odd thing, but I, I don't know. It's it's a great one. It really is. Um, but just sort of the tie, you should watch or rewatch it. Yes, I, I gave it a six, but I think I need to rewatch it. Yeah, there's after, actually a great, after after Manchurian Candidate, which I've never seen. There's actually a great, an excellent rather side performance in Seven Days in May by um, he was always cast as drunk characters. I uh, Edmund O'Brien was that his name? Yep. Yeah. Edmund yes. O'Brien. Excellent performance shot, from him. Man who shot Liberty Valance. Liberty Valance. Drunken that one. Yes. So he he's typecast, but he he plays it like nobody else can play it. So um, mm-hmm. definitely return to that one, Ben. Okay. Um, and if we're going to talk about drunk characters, you have to mention David Niven as the ghost captain oh who drinks an endlessly refilling bottle of scotch in The Extraordinary Seaman. Seaman, yes. And yeah, we haven't mentioned that one yet. And there, there's actually quite a few we haven't mentioned. We're not going to mention all of them, but um, that was one but of Frank, the terrible Frank and I McCall the Extraordinary Seaman, his worst film. So, you know, mm-hmm. take that as a warning if you're interested. We yeah. seem to agree with that. Um, that one stars Alan Alda also, which I guess you might want to watch it if you're an Alan Alda fan, but uh, I mean, proceed it, with caution. It depends on the and definition. Faye um, Dunaway is in it too. Just before she became famous, I think she'd she'd filmed Bonnie and Clyde and it hadn't come out yet. And then she went down to Mexico to the it place filmed. that Frankenheimer described as the asshole of the world to shoot this crappy comedy film. And by the time it came out, she was like the the new hotness of new Hollywood. And 
but it didn't help the extraordinary <laughs> semen. <laughs> so, uh, Nick, I was going to say, it depends on the spelling of semen. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a film about uh, the Navy. Yes. Okay. But it is well, also a joke. I mean, it could, that's, that spelling could still apply to that. <laughs> that was this, the is why we, uh, this is why we it kept is, you it, on, Ben. Yeah. So you can make that <laughs> it, joke. <laughs> It is the only thing probably keeping the ice stand cometh from the bottom of either Nick and I's list. Pretty much, yeah. I put story of a love story very low as well, too. But apparently, again, that guy who was doing the uh, this company is doing a restored version. They've got a longer French or an mm. international cut of the film. We saw the shorter American cut, mm. I believe. So let's see the restored version of that and see if it improves a bit. Proves, yeah. Uh, I, I, I would uh, happily uh, give that another shot. I would happily give that another shot. And also, yeah. we watched it on a cruddy VHS rip. Um, and I've experienced recently that sometimes a fresh re a fresh restoration is all you need to really appreciate a movie that you kind of wrote off before. Right. Especially in, for I mean, for Frankenheimer's sake, it's it should enhance the technical aspect, mm -hmm. even though there's not anything in, like, there's no intense action in that one. Um, mm. So let's let's sort of tie this come to an end with this um is there anything any other film you guys want to mention uh do you want to just maybe name your top three frankenheimer films um anything you want to tell the audience that we haven't mentioned about john frankenheimer um i think i think we you guys have done an excellent job um of filling in the blanks adding context and having mm -hmm. a great conversation for everybody um so please if there's anything else you would like to add before we uh have to leave I guess I'd say that my top three would be pretty obvious. It'd be the the train, Roan, and the Manchurian Candidate. Mm -hmm. um, three, and then there's Seven Days in May, Black Sunday, Fifty Two Pick Up, Path to War, Seconds. Like he's got probably ten great pictures. Mm -hmm. Then maybe twenty not so good ones as well. Yeah. So again, I think he was uh, he he came just before that new Hollywood period where the directors became even more household names. I mean, there were famous directors before. You've been you're talking about like. Howard Hawks or John Ford, of course, is Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock. And yeah. he's like the first director to become a meme. But in the sort of 70s, you had those guys like Scorsese and De Palma and uh, Francis Ford Coppola who would be like, people go, oh, it's the new Francis Ford Coppola movie. I've got to go see this. Frankenheimer never quite got to that stage because he'd sort of already peaked by them. But I think he was a huge influence on the new Hollywood movement. And even mm -hmm. like we were saying with Ronan, if you watch car action movies of the 2000s you're seeing a lot of frankenheimer influence there mm -hmm. uh, a movie like seconds that we didn't really dwell on a lot uh if you watch uh pi the uh the it's basically the 90s of seconds mm -hmm. uh hugely influential on filmmakers they talk sometimes about musicians musicians or comedians comedians i really think frankenheimer was more of a filmmaker's filmmaker rarely a huge public favorite but a very influential uh, artist mm -hmm. and, and one I think people should definitely delve into. You don't have to watch The Extraordinary Seaman or uh, The Iceman Cometh, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of great titles that hopefully we've encouraged some people to uh, check mm -hmm. out today. Definitely. Well, to that, point, to that point, Nick, sorry, Max, I'll let you speak. Um, I think, I still think Grand Prix and the Gypsy Moths have some of the most, ex I mean, the train really should be up there too, but action sequences in all of those films 
I would dare say are unmatched still for the type of technology mm-hmm. he had uh, in the 60s. I agree. And especially now when everything, even like you watch The Fast and the Furious, and they're like, oh, we're doing it for real. It's so much green screen. You watch Grand Prix. He's got a 70 millimeter camera in a, in a Formula One car. It's stunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. absolutely. It's so good you forgive the fact that the plot itself is... Yes, it's minimal. Maybe the most <laughs> unmemorable story he's ever right. done. The bed hopping yeah. antics between the races aren't so hot, but the racing footage yeah. is incredible. Yeah. It's actually it's actually an interesting point you brought up, Nick, in that he is John Frankenheimer is a director that uh we have the utmost respect for, and yet more than half of his filmography I'd probably give two and a half stars or less to. But the highs are, are high. high. Yes. Yes. Um, I yeah, still I have some gaps. I still have some gaps to fill in uh, some of his better movies. So my top three could fluctuate after this podcast. Sure. Um, but at the moment, I would probably rank it as Ronin, Grand Prix, Black Sunday. I mean, that's those are solid. Um, solid. Yeah, I mean, my three, my three, my top three would be uh, the Horseman, Grand Prix, and Reindeer Games. But I'm a bit of a, um, <laughs> I'm a bit of a oddball. You're a bit of a contrarian, aren't you? Uh, I, I guess it's the contrary in me, but I, what, I have reasons. I have reasons on the for show. loving those, and that's why I'm on the show. Yeah, but yeah. Well, Chris and I are just no, no reindeer. No reindeer were harmed during the making of reindeer <laughs> games. Thank goodness. Yes, I would actually say reindeer game is just one twist too many from being a great movie. There's one twist too many at the very end that kind of makes it unravel a bit. But if it wasn't for that final twist, I might actually even give it four stars too. And there just to go. say that, the, it's like Shelley's there on. The only reason she did Reindeer Games is she said, I wanted to work with John Frankenheim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think he's so I think, known uh, for his strong female uh, characters. Characters. <laughs> well, I think Ben Affleck <laughs> said the same thing, really. He was like, it was my chance to work with Frankenheimer. So, and it literally yeah. was. It was his last theatrical film. Film, yeah. And so, I'll, yeah. I'll throw in my top three because it means so much, three out of five. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the train's great. And Seven Days in May and Grand Prix were solid. I, I'd need to rewatch them, but the Grand my problem with Grand Prix, Prix is like I don't want to freaking sit down for three hours. It's a lot of time to watch racing, man. Oh, but those ra- those I might as well fly by. I might as well just go watch like NASCAR highlights for like ten minutes, and I'm you know, <laughs> well, not, fill, not, not NASCAR to, Formula One. <laughs> to fill in Max and Nick, though, Ben also prefers uh, Steve McQueen's Le Mans, um, which. We did extensive work on because and there's a there's um, a connection between that movie and Grand Prix because Steve mm-hmm. McQueen thinks that Frankenheimer and uh, one of his best friends at the time in, in 65, 66, uh, James Gardner stole that script and movie from him and released. You know, there was a mm-hmm. there's a whole thing about there was a documentary on it, but there's a whole thing with how that one. Stu- I forget the studios, but the studio making Grand Prix and the studio making Steve McQueen's Day of the Champion, which never got released, there was an actual race in the studio. So that's a whole interesting like little history part of Hollywood. But um, yeah, I, I like Le Mans a lot, but that's it has to do with the, the Steve McQueen aspect a lot. Uh, the part of it. I mean, the yeah. to be to be fair, and uh, the racing parts in that are also unique and they're all they're they're very good in their own ways also. Um, it's just it's different. It's different. Yes. Um, I like Grand Prix more, but I, I did like Le Mans. So, yeah, for what that's worth. Or as uh, old boomers that I talk to about that are like, Le Mans. I'm like, 
Okay. I'm not, I'm not, not, not going to try. I prefer names to Grand, grand Pricks. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Um, all right, guys. Well, um, Max, Nick, uh, thank you for coming on. Um, I don't know if anybody has anything else they want to say, but um, really appreciate you guys coming on and talking John Frankenheimer uh, with me um, and Ben. Oh, thank you so much for having us. I, I was a a slightly active listener, <laughs> but no, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. This is great stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, now that we have two reputable guests, people will want to listen. So if they get to this this far, that was the whole point, everybody. So, uh, but yeah, just the and again, I hope that it, it has not. encouraged people to to check out some of these uh, lesser known known films and uh, celebrate a, a really innovative filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, before we get out of here, uh, Max first, then Nick, since Nick has already been on. But plug plug your letterbox if you want. Maybe you don't want people oh, following yes. you. Yes. But... No, no, absolutely. Um, I, my letterbox handle is Mushi Minion. Uh, goes back to an old nickname from high school, which I won't go into the whole story behind that. Um, but it is probably the shining star in my my life's journey so far. My one claim to fame is being moderately popular on a social media movie site. There you go. And Mr. Langdon? Yes, you can follow me on Letterboxd at Nick Langdon. Um, I don't have maybe uh, Max or uh, Chris's fame, but uh, they did tweet about one of my lists once, which was nice. So, uh, (laughs) you know, they promoted me. All my hard work is finally paying off now. (laughs) (laughs) You, you, You hit 500 followers recently. I did. Yeah, c- I did. Congrats. Uh, yes. I'm not sure how many of them are bots, but uh, I'm I'm grateful for your attention. <laughs> I don't know how many bots are on Letterboxd. <laughs> there's a lot of people with zero followers, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We only well, care about a- the ones who like us back. That's right. Right. Or interact with us and actually like do things. But yeah. Um, yeah, guys, uh, this has been awesome. Um, anyone listening, please follow both of these fine gentlemen. Um, they do write good reviews and they are great personalities, uh, to tap into the movie world. Um, uh, Ben, is there anything else you want to say? I'm just, I'm just going to say, uh, after listening to this long podcast, please rate and subscribe and all that good shit. Those always help, but reviews, reviews help a lot, a lot on Apple. So, uh, and mailbags, if you want, uh, Right. Yeah. All the, the stuff. It, it's all in the episode description. So other than that, I'm good. Watch some John Frankenheimer. Is this train coming to the station or? Train is leaving the station. It's leaving the station. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Thanks for listening to the Searchers Podcast. If you want to hear more of our thoughts on movies, you can find us on Letterboxd. Ben at Giant13, Chris at Ziglet underscore Mer, and me at Kevin Chan. Find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and on searchersfilmpodcast.podbean.com. Until next time, people.